0: if you awaken from this illusion, Persistence of Vision. Hello, and welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast, inspiring conversations with talks about books with fine, fine folks. Hello, folks. I'm Lance Fever Myers. And I'm L.B. Dio.
1: So glad that you came to join us today for the POV Publishing Podcast. That's pov-publishing.com. If you want to check us out online, we've got more podcasts, past podcasts. We've got cartoons and comics by world-renowned artists. We have essays. We have poetry. We have all kinds of stuff. So go check it out right now, pov-publishing.com.
0: What are you waiting for?
1: And if you're feeling like you want to check out your and and make a new favorite book you can check out my novel it's called why so much it's available on amazon and at Malvern books in austin texas uh i know you've probably already purchased it already but it's time to purchase another copy and share it with a friend yes
0: and uh (laughs) that's why so much with the question mark built right in to the title
1: (laughs) that's right The, the question mark comes free of charge it's built in
0: so who do we have today Well, we are extremely excited today to have the author of Fifty Years After Vietnam, Mr. Bill Lord, on the show with us. Hello, Bill. How are we doing? You're doing great so far. (laughs) (laughs) We're delighted to have you.
1: Well, I'm excited to be here. this is really exciting. We just—it's interesting. We just had the our our guest uh, last time was David Peters, who talked about war as well. He talked about. Uh, joining the Gulf War. No, the Iraq War. Uh, right, right, sure. I think he had referred to, to it as the Gulf Go- Yeah, No, no, no the okay. Iraq War. All right, sorry. My mistake. The, the Iraq War. Anyway, uh, the, the war that was, what, mm, 15 years ago? Yeah, 2003. Right. And he uh, shared with us some kind of similar uh, f- feelings about his experience there, as what um, I gather from your book. Um but it's just interesting to 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 draw some of those parallels. What can you tell us about um okay, this so this book came out about a year ago. is that right? Yes. And what was it like for you um, writing this book now? Well, it's kind of
2: interesting because I essentially got back from Vietnam in nineteen sixty eight. And said, I am never going to look back on this experience. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to close the door on this. I'm going to only look forward for the rest of my life. And I did that. I literally uh, didn't talk about Vietnam, didn't stay in touch with anybody. Uh, I just subdued any Vietnam thoughts. And then I retired. And we found all these letters that I had apparently written home to my mother. And... uh, All of a sudden, I had time on my hands, and I had a time frame to write this in, and it all just kind of spilled back out. It's amazing to me how you can suppress something for 50 years, and then when you start thinking about it, you remember it in just infinite detail on some of the parts of it. So it actually was a pretty easy book to write. We used all the letters as kind of a time frame, and then in between them all. I just told stories and they were all stories that I kind of remembered. So it it wasn't hard to write because I didn't have to do any research. I just kind of told the stories.
1: Right. So so even though you had made great efforts to sort of kind of put it behind you, was was it surprising to you to read the letters and have it all come rushing back? Or Were there things about in the letters that that um, that you hadn't remembered that that the letters kind of reawakened? Well, yes. First of all, you got to remember,
2: I didn't know these letters even existed until two or three years ago. I mean, I I knew I had written letters, but I didn't know we had them. Uh, I guess what it reminded me when I read them is, you know, how young and uh, politically unaware I was, Uh (laughs) How uh, just kind of clueless about international relations. Uh, You know, it's just when you're 19 or 20 years old, you don't have a fully formed uh, series of judgments on things. So uh, I was kind of naive in those days. And I've even described this book as uh, history uh, through the eyes of a young and clueless kid as told by an older and wiser version of himself. Ah. <laughs> in other words, uh, I used all that to, to uh, just kind of tell the stories uh, and realizing now what I didn't realize then some of the kind of geopolitical parts of it, yes. right? So, um, go ahead.
0: I was just gonna say, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the whole thing started for you? You, what branch of the service were you in?
2: Uh, I was in the army, uh, I was drafted. It was kind of, I won't go into great detail, but I had gotten myself in such a jam as a as a flunked out college student, that going in the army was actually the best choice I had. So <laughs> when I got drafted, I just kind of submitted to it. Uh, and I was in the army, which is a two-year hitch. Uh, I went through all the training and thought I had uh, kind of skated because they sent me to Berlin. Yes. <laughs> and then, stupidly, or whatever you want to say, I, I really did feel like the biggest event of my generation was taking place a half a world away. And so I volunteered to go to Vietnam just to kind of see what I was missing. Sure. And I can tell you that in the first two or three days of being in Vietnam, I had seen enough of what I was missing. Yes. And I I was ready to take all that back. But uh, there was no getting around it at that point. Wow. Oh, yeah.
0: And so you were there in 1968?
2: 67 and 68. 69. I got there. Yeah, so it was during the time of the Tet Offensive, and it, it was it was an interesting time in that uh, this was the, the year that I was there was the year that the country kind of turned against the war. The big demonstration started, uh, the Tet Offensive took place, uh, Walter Cronkite came out against the war. Uh, Uh, Just Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Johnson gave up the presidency. All of these things happened, uh, having a huge impact in the United States. And we were getting a reflection of it uh, off in the middle of nowhere in these rice paddies where we essentially did our jobs.
0: So were you hearing about a lot of these events, these assassinations and so forth? Were you hearing about them from the Army or from other sources?
2: Well... We all got letters and our parents would send us clips from uh, newspapers, but you know, we did get a lot of the information we got filtered through Army publications, either Armed Forces Radio or the Stars and Stripes. But we got a reasonably good picture of what was going on when you combine all of the sources of information that we had.
1: Mm. So tell me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds as though when you first signed up and you first went to Vietnam, uh, you were uh, not against it. You were you were buying in. You were interested, and you were you were plugged into the whole uh, the whole thing. Um, and then after the TED offensive, uh, things started to sort of shift. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I don't know that I was completely bought into the whole okay. thing, but I did see that. You know they had this thing that they referred to as the domino theory. If we let South Vietnam go, then we, the next up will be South Korea, and then Thailand and Laos will go, and pretty soon they'll, you know, the Red Chinese are going to be marching through Sydney, Australia. Uh, that was kind of what we were told, and it was, you uh, know, it was a decent line. I mean, we it sort of made sense, but when you get over there, uh, you realize that. We particularly our group. I was in the ninth division. We were in the Mekong Delta. We never fought the North Vietnamese. <clears throat> we were fighting uh, the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong were indigenous residents of the Mekong Delta. So what we realized is that we weren't fighting uh, a territorial war. We were basically involved in a revolution, and we were going into these people's backyards, and uh, and fighting with them, and it. It did seem to change the dynamic a lot when we realized that we were fighting uh, on the side of the revolution where these people that we were fighting, the Vietnam, they didn't think they were communists. They thought they were nationalists. They thought they were patriots. They really did. Uh, you know, they were highly motivated because they were fighting in their minds for their country. Completely different picture than we had been led to believe uh, when we left the United States,
1: so it, it, at first it seemed like a, a an effort to contain communism. And yes. but, but once you got there, you realized you were fighting in amongst the people that were they were not invaders, but people that were already there and already believed in 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 what they were fighting for, as far as a nationalist
2: in their minds, fighting for their country. Right. Now, it was a communist leadership in North Vietnam, and they did, uh, you know, they continued to be communists. But it was, a, it was a different dynamic where we
1: were, certainly. So tell our listeners, you've so you mentioned the TED Offensive. Tell us what, what that was.
2: Well, basically, uh, the war itself, and, and I, I can oversimplify this, but it really is not too far oversimplified. Uh, our job was to go out in boats or helicopters or whatever and wander through the delta and wait for somebody to shoot at us. Uh, we were essentially targets because there was no way we would ever find them if they didn't reveal themselves to it, to us. So, uh, you know, we were involved mostly in fairly small skirmishes because they wanted to, essentially, fight guerrilla warfare. They wanted to ambush us, take a few casualties, and then disappear into the bush. Uh, in the Tet offensive. Uh, they all of a sudden changed that tactic dramatically and tried to go into the cities, go into all of the towns in the Delta and and all throughout the entire country of South Vietnam. And they wanted to take and hold territory, which was something that uh, we had really not faced before. Uh, And nobody was prepared for it. That's how uh, they got into the embassy in Saigon. I mean, nobody was really uh, prepared to see that happen. The reason that they never tried to hold ground before is we had unbelievable firepower and we could always win if we knew where they were. You just call in airstrikes and artillery and uh, one thing leads to another and they either die or they run. But during Tet, they went into these places, tried to hold the ground, and in the end, took horrible, horrible casualties. They scared the hell out of the United States. They scared the hell out of soldiers like us and certainly the high command in uh, Vietnam. But ultimately, over the next two weeks, uh, they were routed out, uh, and honestly, they took unbelievable casualties. So They lost the war part of this, but they won the political battle because they had just spooked the entire United States of America and and, you know, anybody who was in the States at that time would have to say that they managed to turn people's opinions 100 yeah. uh, yeah. percent by doing what they did, even though they took enormous casualties. And it was a price they were willing to pay for their long term strategic goals.
0: Yes, the, there was an extraordinary quality of, to the dedication of the enemy in Vietnam, uh, a willingness to to face. Firepower that was almost it was almost like something out of a science fiction movie like War of the Worlds, yeah. where they had no chance in any particular engagement or virtually no chance of, of success, and yet they continued to fight well, and die.
2: I have to say, we didn't like them very much. They were the enemy. Yes. We we fought them and we hated them, but we always respected them because honestly, they were more motivated than anything we would ever have thought we would encounter. Uh, I'll give you a great example of that. Uh, The Viet Cong, uh, if we were not there, would have been fighting the Army of South Vietnam. Uh, The Army of South Vietnam had all the same hardware we had, they had the same bombers, they had the same artillery whatever, but they lacked any motivation whatsoever. So uh, they ended up just basically being security guards in the city and they sent the American troops out to fight the Viet Cong. Mm. And when you stop and think about it, if they're not motivated enough to defend their own country, <laughs> why are we doing it for them? Right. And that was one of, the, one of the many wake-up calls we had over there. It's like, come on, these guys were over there sipping Cokes and uh, pulling guard duty at a, you know, uh, a military base that could never be overrun. We're out here uh, with our kind of butts in the breeze, so to speak.
1: So, uh, you know, you've mentioned that you, you kind of try to put this behind you for most of your life. And only recently have, have you started sort of reexamining this. What's it been like? Um, because, you know, I, I think you've mentioned that uh, many of your coworkers, as you, because, you know, you went into the media. You went into the journalism. And many of your coworkers didn't even, they weren't even aware of the fact that you had had this part of your life. And now, you know, here you are doing multiple interviews based on your experience there. What's that been like just making that total shift? Well, it's been interesting.
2: I mean, I I really don't know why I wrote the book other than I just wanted to record it all mostly for my family, because you got to remember, I didn't talk to them about it either. Right. Uh, But as I got into it, uh, I really enjoyed it because uh, honestly, uh, it was an opportunity to uh, say what I had to say uh you know tell people what i had learned from it all you know i i remember some of the the favorite parts i had and these are the things that i remembered in great detail uh not necessarily the uh, the battle parts but just uh you know drill sergeants and the colorful language they used i mean that, it was amazing to me and it, it Plays is kind of a funny part of the book. Uh, I was able to go on rants, whatever we, whenever I wanted to. So uh, I ranted about snipers, all snipers, snipers then, snipers now, because that's the one thing we feared the whole time we were there. Uh, you know, I was able to write about chopper pilots. I've got a brother-in-law who came to our family recently, but he was a chopper pilot over there, and they were the kind of unsung heroes of everything because they were the ones that took the most risks to do the most things that helped us so you know it was very satisfying to get all these things down on paper uh it hasn't been that much of a uh a struggle to do the interviews about it because it's all still fairly new to me you know? <laughs> wow. uh, and I, again I, I mentioned earlier uh, it it was Uh, surprising the detail I remembered. And I I did a a very deliberate thing in the book. I didn't write about battles so much. I really wanted to just kind of tell the stories of how our minds changed over time. Kind of the funny things that happened to us. Uh, And there were heartbreaking things too. Uh, You know, I tell a a long story about a guy that was pretty much my best friend over there who died in a gun accident of all things. Uh, He was literally just Holding his rifle up uh, for some guy to pull him out of a ditch. And somehow, between the two of them, the safety was off. The guy pulled the trigger and, you know, he just boom, he's gone. Yes. That kind of stuff. Uh, it's emotional to write about, it's emotional to remember. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that to me made more sense than, you know, doing battle tactics and all that other kind of stuff for a book like this. Because it really was a personal book. It was personal stories of things that uh, I had.
0: Yes, and and you know the that's one of the virtues of a book like yours is that while it's possible to get a thirty thousand foot view of the war in a history book, uh, a more traditional history book, it's it's invaluable to hear a personal account and get a sense of what it was actually like to be there. I wonder if you could actually walk us through a typical day as an infantryman in the Mekong Delta.
2: Well. Uh, I'll tell you, first of all, you get up really early.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you sleep on base or or are you out in the field?
2: Well, you know, we would go out in three or four day uh, chunks and then we would come back to a base camp uh, for two or three days to rest up. You really couldn't live in the bush, Uh, but you'd be out there for three or four days at a time. But whether you were getting up to leave the base camp or getting up uh, in the field, you know, honestly, you were up before dawn virtually every day. Uh, I carried a radio, so I had extra weight to pack around. And, you know, part of it, you got to remember, you you weren't in combat every day, there would be several weeks at a time where nothing would happen. And you were just based with absolute and total boredom that could be interrupted by total terror at any moment. Uh, Because you really did worry about ambushes, you worried about uh, the snipers, you, you know, you had worries and stress all the time. But a lot of it was, we had to cover a lot of ground, we had to carry a lot of weight, it was unbelievably hot. I mean, you can't, I, I can't even express how the discomfort levels. Uh, I, I went through some of the, the things that in, in the book. There were red ants everywhere. That anytime you sat down, red ants would be all over you, and they they would sting like a bee. Yes. Uh, when you were walking through water, which we did all day every day, leeches would get you. Oh, you know, you would just. I mean, these are. You know, I laugh about them now, but these are pretty serious discomforts when we're <laughs> right. doing it. Right, all. It's the and worst then, camping trip ever. Oh, by the way, somebody's trying to kill you. <laughs> yes. So brutal. Uh,
0: So tell me, tell us about the base first. Uh, You, you, was it a fire base or some, it was some kind of obviously fortified area where you were relatively safe most of the time?
2: Because of where we were, uh, some of the time uh, we were actually on troop ships
0: uh, in the Delta Ah.
2: or in the Mekong River, uh, which was the safest place of all because uh, you could actually, you had a bunk, you had decent Navy food. (laughs) It was great. But you were only there for two days and then you'd be out in the world uh other times we were in a base camp called dong tam which was probably i'm gonna say a mile and a half by a mile and a half so it it was big enough to uh, accommodate you and there was never any uh real fear of being overrun because uh, there was just too much open space that an attacker would have to cover but they did lob mortars into the place all the time so you know, you would wake up to a siren uh, more often than not, and you'd have to go get in a bunker in the middle of the night because uh, they were dropping mortar shells in you on you. So, uh, and when you were in base, it was no fun because they would make you fill sandbags all day. Oh. So, I, I think part of it was to make us so uncomfortable when we were in the base that they would want us that we would want to go back out in the field ourselves. Uh, <laughs> uh, but there were very few creature comforts. Uh, other than you, you had a bed. But when you were in the field, you literally wrapped up in a poncho and slept
1: on the ground. I mean, that's just the way it was. So things were rough there, obviously, but one part of, of the book, one discussion that you, that you bring up in the book is support back home and how the, the, the public opinion of the war affected you as a soldier and, um, and the country as a whole. Um, Can you uh, touch on that a little bit? Well, yeah, because honestly, the kinds of changes
2: that were taking place in the States were not lost on us. And and we were going through those changes as well. Uh, We slowly became uh, anti-war soldiers. I mean, honestly, after I'd been there for a month or two, my only goal was survival so I could get back home. Because once you realize that what you were told was just not really true, it wasn't like they lied to us, but it really wasn't, they didn't tell us the right story. But uh, once you start seeing what's happening in the States, and once you start changing, then you start looking at yourself and saying, what are we doing here? And no one uh, at that point could explain to us a good reason for doing what we were doing. So, It all became a game of, you know, it was a search and destroy mission from the military's point of view. It was a search and avoid the enemy (laughs) as far as we were concerned. (laughs) We didn't want to make contact with the enemy. We didn't want to destroy anything. We just, we were playing defense. Uh, We did everything we could to uh, basically survive. Now, I know that... uh, and there, there was a real division in the army at that point, the officers and many of them were great people who had been to West Point and highly educated intellectual people. Uh, but they wanted to win the war. They wanted the body count. They wanted to uh, do their jobs as well as they could. But the people like us who were on the front lines, we weren't ever going to get promoted to anything in the army. Hmm. We, we were never going to be said, nobody was ever going to tell us, good job, guys, you're, you're really uh, out there kicking butt. Uh, we didn't want the same things they wanted. We just wanted to
0: uh, get home. Well, that's a remarkable aspect of the Vietnam War. Uh, Isn't it that the, really, I can't think of another war in our history where the primary focus of all of the military's communiques and and goals have to do with body counts.
2: Well, it was crazy. And uh, I read about one of the little episodes in the book that was so nuts. And that was, uh, you know, we we had had one of these little hit and run ambushes and we had some idea that there were some Viet Cong in a tree line, maybe two or 300 yards from us. And so we, as was our want, we called in artillery. I mean, let's let's blow the place up rather than go do the work ourselves. And after that died down, uh, a Colonel who's flying around in a helicopter wanted to know the body count. And, you know, you had to stop and say, okay, we can walk across 200 yards of open rice paddy, which is very dangerous, and root around in shell holes and see what we can find. Or I can just lie to the guy. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> there are four or five dead people here. I was talking to him on the radio. My boss was the company commander who was watching me talk to him on the radio. And I just brazenly told him, yeah, you know, we, we have like three dead people and three or four more probables and just a bunch of gobbledygook. And he said, well, you know, if I if I wrote reported back a dozen or so, would that be OK?
1: <laughs> yes. And I said, yeah,
2: I think that's fine. Which yeah. was my way of saying, if uh, if anybody asks, yeah, I'll back you. Up. <laughs> but it was much easier to lie than it was to take, you know, to risk 50 guys lives yeah. to Go out and get a number that he's going to put on his report, so he can get promoted. Right. Well, listen. So back to this
1: idea of of you know public opinion um, playing a role in in you know uh, your uh, life coming home and um, and the country as a whole. How do you think that affected your decision to to go into journalism?
2: Well, it's it, it's a series of steps, but I'll take you through. Them. Uh, the one thing we did not anticipate, you know, the, the country sort of went against the war, they started getting mad at the politicians, They there were lots of demonstrations, but somewhere in that transition, the public started blaming the soldiers. And we got home, and people hated us. They called us baby killers. I mean, we were, we were like pariahs. And we did not anticipate that at all. I mean, how would you ever think? I mean, we're, we're victims in our minds. We were drafted. We were sent over there against our will. We did this job. We, you know, we were the lucky ones who survived, but all of a sudden you're calling us baby killers and, and, and we're the, we're the bad guys. Well, I went right from that experience into college and colleges at that time were completely uh, divided between, you know, totally, uh, I'll just say left wing people and right wing people, uh, not unlike it is today, but even more intense. And I wanted to be involved in public life, but I didn't want to be out on the radical fringes of it. And I just accidentally stumbled into the student newspaper and realized you can be involved in everything and you don't have to take sides if you're a journalist. And once that little light bulb went off, I had a career (laughs) and it it really did work for me. I mean, I I loved being in the middle of uh, the political activity and all the things that journalists do, but I didn't have to take sides. Uh, and there were very few times where uh, I could honestly say that I, I paid a price for not taking
0: sides. I think that uh, the people at home are really gonna be curious to hear one aspect of being over there, and that is the, the combat itself. Because I don't think that most of us have a, at all a clear idea of what it is to be in a firefight or or to be in a uh, in, in combat in Vietnam. What, I mean, could you walk us through a, 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 an engagement?
2: Well, the typical engagements now, very early on, uh, there were pitched battles where they would last for hours and hours. And sometimes that would happen and both sides would take enormous cal- cal- Casualties. And both sides began to avoid those things for that very reason. The Viet Cong didn't want to lose three or 400 people in a battle, uh, nor did we. So it became a guerrilla war. So it became us walking around and literally smaller ambushes. Uh, Sometimes we would fly in in helicopters and the helicopters would get ambushed. But uh, the engagements typically didn't last more than 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. And... I realize this now in retrospect, if you survived the first minute or two of uh, an ambush, the odds were you were going to survive, but it was just that terrorizing transition from, you know, you're bored, you're hot, your mosquitoes are crawling all over you and you're, you know, you're just dog tired to all of a sudden the bullets fly. And now you've got to get sharp. You've got to make all the right moves. you got to make the right decisions. And if you can, you know a lot of his luck but if you make the right decisions and are lucky in that first minute or 2 you they'll survive because ultimately uh the people who were ambushing us wanted to get as many of us as they could and then they wanted to get out right so uh and those things happened uh sometimes more seriously than others sometimes closer and uh, range than we would like sometimes they were far away and it was just a we just hear a few pops out in the distance. Yeah, so, I was going to ask so, him. Do you typically see the enemy? Uh, no, I, I think uh, I will honestly say that the only uh, Viet Cong I saw that I actually saw with my own eyes were dead ones. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's because they they couldn't get away. Now they would they would dig holes. They'd cover themselves with brush. I mean, they were uh, very hard to see and they had all the advantages because they knew the turf. They knew, they knew our behavior much better than we knew theirs. I mean, and we couldn't, you know, we're a, uh, an infantry company is a, about 130 or 40 guys making noise for miles away. They always knew where we were. We never knew where they were, but it is terrorizing. It's scary. Uh, I cannot underplay that. Uh, you know, your heart beats through your chest when that's happening. And, You uh, again, I don't want to make a big fuss about it, but you don't forget that stuff, Uh, even though I suppressed it for 50 years. uh, What I found is it all lived on inside me uh, that whole time.
1: I'm sure the suppression is a kind of a defense mechanism. It it would have to be to 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 make it through something so harrowing and, and then come back and try to live a normal life.
2: Yeah, well, a lot of people said. How did it change you? <laughs> it's like, well, how would I know? <laughs> you know, I am what I am. I, I just don't know what it would have been like had I not done those right, things. Right. Uh, I usually get away with a smart answer, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's, all through my life, uh, little things would, would remind me of Vietnam. Even to this day, I cannot hear the womp womp of a helicopter without getting a little twinge in the pit of my stomach. What the hell is that? I mean, I loved flying in helicopters. I I flew them all the time, uh, even working for television stations. But that womp womp uh obviously is unmasking some little hidden fear that still lives inside sure. of it that uh you just you just have no idea. And I think uh, when you uh stop and people try to figure out what PTSD is. Honestly, I think it's an absolute different set of circumstances with almost every soldier. But uh, to larger or lesser degrees, guys have all kinds of little quirks like that. Uh, You know, it could be the smell of diesel fuel. It could be uh, the muddy water in our river that you've been around. Uh, It can be uh, jet noises. It can be loud noises on the 4th of July. Right. There are all kinds of different little triggering things. Some of them you laugh at, uh, but uh, some guys can't laugh at them. Some guys have it much more severely than uh, I, I don't think I ever had what you would call PTSD because I forced myself to get back into school and get back into normal life. And, you know, just through force of determination of ignoring all that stuff. I, you know, I ended up with a great life. I, I have nothing to complain about. But other guys just couldn't do it. They couldn't make the turn. Right. And you can't judge them for it because you just can't tell what little psychological quirks uh, they took out of there that live on within
1: them. Mm. Certainly. Well, uh, we're, we're drawing to a close here, um, but we do have a what we call our lightning round um, where we, uh, we ask every, uh, every guest the same battery of questions. So are, are you ready for our speed round here? I am. Okay, here we go. Um, since this uh, is essentially about writing, um, a lot of these have to do with books. So what is the first uh, time you remember falling in love with a book? Probably Catcher in the Rye when I was twelve years Uh old. Twelve years old, okay. Precocious. My mother made me (laughs) read. Bless her. Yes. Um, Okay. So, uh, has a book ever changed your mind about anything? I'm sure it has,
2: but I'm I'm having a hard time pulling that out because I I
1: generally read fiction. That gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Um, Well, that's that's a perfectly valid answer. Then, has a book ever changed your life?
2: Well, let me think. Uh, I, I'm sure there is one, but I, I can't think of them. Uh, oddly enough, songs have been more that way to me. Certain songs have really reached out and touched. All me. right. Tell us, Books. tell us which ones. Uh, the Dixie Chicks, Traveling Soldier. Okay. John Fogarty, uh, favorite song.
0: Favorite song. Uh,
2: things like that. There's a there's an Australian song called We Were Only 19. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, in which, uh, to me, tells the whole story of Vietnam in one line. Just, we were so young. Mm. And, you know, half of us weren't even shaving all full time. I mean, it was just, I I said in the book, I don't know if you remember it, but I would just like somebody somewhere to do a movie where the actors are the actual age of the people they're playing. Right, Uh, right. Because, you know, all the war movies have these, 35 year old guys with (laughs) stubble beards. Yeah. And you don't see a choir boy looking kid. (laughs) Yeah. Scared out of his wits.
1: Right. You say it it felt more like you guys were, you know, high school kids dressing up to pretend like you were playing war.
2: Yeah. And it, believe me, if you look at the pictures of kids from Vietnam, uh, you'll see some of that. Now, during the course of a year, people change a lot. Oh, Sure.
1: (laughs) But uh, when we got there, uh, it was very much like that. Okay, well, back to the uh, the speed round here. Has a book ever made you cry?
2: Oh, lots of them. Uh, let me see if I can think of something offhand. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm drawing blanks, which is terrible. But I'll say this: uh, even reading my own book, I tear up sometimes yeah. at some of the little things. I'll give you a, just a. Quick, quick uh, example. Uh, you know, you were talking about being lied to. We were lied to one time, and it was the nicest lie ever. It was when the uh, when you're getting off the – they took us over there in commercial planes. and When we were getting off the plane, the flight attendant, uh, almost every one of them said, see you on the way back. Mm. Well, that's a great thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You won't be seeing all of us. Mm. Uh, but they said that to everybody. It was like, wow. That was, I mean, they, those guys, uh, the the flight attendants that did that were just great people.
1: Right. That is, it's just the one, one little remark like that can mean so much, especially in that context, of course. Yeah, because
2: that's even before you go down the, walk down the stairs and realize that it's 110 degrees and
1: you're about to keel over on your first <laughs> minute. In right. Okay, well, can you tell us a book uh, that you've read more than once? Uh, yes,
2: um... <laughs> oh, I read one just recently. <sighs> Boy, uh, you know, I I really feel like I'm I'm a, a bad lightning round. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're doing fine.
2: Wow, i well. Certainly, Catcher in the Rye I did. Okay, sure. That makes sense.
1: I think I've read that more more than once myself. There are many others that I am just drawing a blank on. So. Well, uh here's the the million dollar question. I think only one guest so far has actually graced us with uh, some some poetry committed to memory. But do you have any poems memorized? I'm I'm going to be a big
2: disappointment. To that's you.
1: that's totally No, it, it's interesting to me. I I I think uh uh the statistics on this particular question have been very revealing, have been very interesting to me. And well, thank you so much for being a guest on our on our little podcast here. It's been such an honor to have you on. Yes, and
0: thank you for...
2: It's been great fun, and uh, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, I look forward to listening to it and see how I sound.
0: Yes, we, we are grateful to you for your book, 50 Years After Vietnam, and for the personal stories that you told, uh, giving uh, some account... For, that we can relate to and understand of what it was actually like to be there. Uh, it's such an important part of our history, and uh, it's so important to have that personal perspective.
1: So one more time, um, I, I was just going to uh, reiterate to the, the listeners here about the book. It's letters that you wrote home when you were just 19 or thereabouts. From... I, was tr- I just turned 20. Right. right. Yeah. Okay, so from Vietnam, these letters that you just recently discovered, and decided to write a memoir based on what it is that, that were the contents of the of the letters, and uh, interspersed with with uh, stuff that you've written um, about them uh, today from from the perspective of 50 years later. Yes. So check out the book available on Amazon.
0: Available on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold, I'm sure.
1: Right. So check it out. Uh, his name is Bill Lord, and the book is 50 Years After Vietnam.
0: Thank you. Larry. Thank you very much, guys.
1: Well, thank you. I really, We really enjoyed it. And everybody out there, if you have not yet, please check out our website. That's pov-publishing.com. You can read essays. You can read poetry, comics. And you can order my book, Why So Much? And what else?
0: And we thank Bill Lord once again. And we thank you for listening. And we look forward to the next time we can sit down and inspire some conversation.
1: See you next time.
0: Take care.